0: Coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee and Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today, we bring you a conversation with paleontologist Tim Flannery on fossils, adventure and Indigenous mentors.
1: You know, as, as the climate commissioner, my job was to go out and talk to average Australians about this. So we held town hall meetings around the country and I would have met 10 to 20,000 Australians sort of face to face in audiences uh, and answered their questions and engaged with them respectfully. And I came away with a very, very deep respect for the common sense of the average person in this country um, and that's something, again, it was a bit like meeting these Indigenous leaders, these great people, something that changed me forever. And I really do have great faith in people and their ability to discern what needs to be done and what's right.
0: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. What kind of mammal do you get if you cross Crocodile Dundee with Charles Darwin? Indiana Jones with David Attenborough? Well, it's Tim Flannery, of course. Mammalogist, paleontologist, environmentalist and Australian of the Year, Tim began his career as an adventuring researcher. He's discovered dozens of new kangaroo species in Australia and mammals in Melanesia. For seven years, Tim served as director of the South Australian Museum. Then at the turn of the 21st century, Flannery made the transition from studying fossils to looking at the impact of fossil fuel. With his 2005 book, The Weathermakers, he began to focus on the urgent challenge of climate change. In 2007, he moved to take up a professorship in climate studies at Macquarie University and then headed the federal government's Climate Change Commission and then, after it was scrapped, the non-profit Climate Council. Tim's written around 30 books and starred in a series of adventure documentaries with John Doyle, ranging from Two Men in a Tinny to Two Men in China. He now lives in Melbourne where he works at the University of Melbourne's Sustainable Society Institute. He is, quite simply, Australia's greatest environmentalist. Tim. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew, and thanks for that very generous uh, introduction. It was a big call at the end. I think there's many, many great Australian environmentalists, but uh, nevertheless. Uh, well, and we will get to, uh, to,
0: to some of your mentors in, the, in, in that field. Uh, but I wanted to start with your uh, your, your growing up uh, here in the city of, uh, of, of Melbourne. Uh, how would you describe your, uh, your childhood?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. I've just read uh, Tim uh, Winton's uh, memoir about Western Australia and growing up on the edge of the of Perth, and and my uh, childhood was, was very, very similar, but I was growing up on the edge of Melbourne. So I was uh, taken home from the Jesse McPherson Hospital, not a, you know, stone's throw from here, uh, down to a little house in Sandringham, which was then a sleepy bayside village, really, on the edge of Melbourne. And uh, my earliest memories uh, were of these beautiful tea tree scrubs and making little cubby houses in them. I must have been three or four, I don't know. And then when I was a bit older, going to the heathlands and catching frogs in these beautiful flowering heathlands. Um, But by the time I was nine or ten, that was all gone. It had just been bulldozed away with seemingly no regret. Um, And I think it had a big impact on me, uh, that whole thing. I remember from the age of about Eight or nine. The my refuge was the bay because that was the area that wasn't, was wasn't subject to development as such. Um, uh, and I I snorkel there, um, watched the bay through the seasons, and it was it was a great refuge. Um, but I remember asking people, why is all of this happening? Why are people dumping rubbish on the Red Bluff cliffs? Why are they filling in these beautiful swamps? And uh, the answer I always got was, well, that's progress. And I decided at that stage I didn't want to have anything much to do with progress, if that was what it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and at that stage, 1950s, uh, you're growing up in a Melbourne, which is, I guess, about uh, 120 years into European civilization, a little bit like the experience of my children now growing up in, in Canberra, which is at a, a similar stage in European civilization. How did that feel?
1: Uh, well, at the time, of course, I didn't... Um I didn't know anything different. That was that was simply life. Um, but looking back on it now, I can see that we were still at a very raw frontier stage. You know, what, five, six, seven generations was about as long as it went back uh, for, for, for Europeans in Melbourne. Um, the thing that I, I still remember so strongly was the absolute lack of Aboriginality, the lack of an Aboriginal presence. Uh, there was no acknowledgement, there was um, uh, you rarely saw Aboriginal people in the streets of Melbourne in my childhood, at least ones I recognised as Aboriginal people. Um, and um, I, I, as a child, it, it sort of it was very strange for me because I was always interested in rocks, looking at the soil, uh, looking at fossils. And I remember finding these layers of middens, what were, you know, where Aboriginal people you'd see the stone tools and the mussels and so forth that they'd gathered, and only near the very surface of the soil almost, and wondered how old they were, what happened to the people. Um, and it was one of the big things for me. I remember the first big road trip I did uh, was when I was, I must have been 17 or 18, I'd just got my motorcycle licence and I decided to go around Australia and uh, went up into the, the Kimberley. We didn't get all the way around Australia on the trip. Um, but um, and, and just seeing that Aboriginal presence there and be, becoming engaged with it was one of those... Enormously influential experiences for me. I, I met an old man called Lawrence Williams, who uh, whoop, t- Aboriginal man who took me under his under his wing. Really, I think, and we, uh, spent a lot of time with me. And I found that that huge. It was just a massive impact on me. And
0: that was up, and you met Lawrence up in the Kimberley. There,
1: I did in in Broome, and back then Broome was a little pearling town really there Mm. was nothing to it and uh, there was only two pubs a black pub and a white pub I remember at the time and I ended up going to the black pub with Lawrence to many (laughs) disturbed looks but I stayed in the caravan park for about a month there just uh, just hanging out and it was a as I said it was something that changed my sense of being Australian
0: you must have had uh, parents who are very comfortable with the uh, the adventuring side, uh, having an eight or nine year old snorkeling snorkeling in the bay, letting a seventeen year old jump on a motorbike and ride around Australia. How's that shaped your view of how much freedom you you give you give your kids to roam, uh, knowing that they're, of course, the most precious thing in the world?
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the great tensions, isn't it? Um, I. <sighs> You know, my 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 father left left uh, home when I was about thirteen. So it was my mum who was bringing us up. She was um we had there was three of us. I guess she was busy. Uh, she was. I know that I probably caused her more heartache than I should have <laughs> at that age. But she was very good at just letting me go and do my own thing. Um, my my oldest son, who's now thirty three, uh, um, we had a house on the Hawkesbury River. In fact, we still have, which is a boat access only house. And uh, when he was twelve, I remember getting him boat and because you get your boat license at 12 Mm. and um he went off you know and i i I experienced some of the heartache that my mother did you know when when he went off and and never phoned never came back out of mobile range (laughs) what's happened to him you know at the age of 14 with his friend Um, they just got stranded by the tide on a beach somewhere but um so it's important it's i think that um a big part of parenting is self-management and you have to let kids explore, you have to, I mean, and, and, and make mistakes, and they will make mistakes, and you hope that they're not going to be mistakes with serious consequences. Sometimes they are, but, but I, I think to, to, to pack children in cotton wool and to limit their experience of the world is ultimately more dangerous mm. than letting them experience it and, and experience the limits of their own capacity.
0: How old were you when you found your first fossil?
1: I was about eight, and it was again one of those transformative experiences. I, I was, I, As I mentioned earlier, I'd spent a lot of time on, in the bay, you know, that was the, the wildlands for me. And um, I remember it was low tide. I was walking along a, a little exposed sand riffle at um, Black Rock, and there was this very strange-shaped stone there. And I can still see it in my mind's eye, and I remember picking it up and looking and thinking, what, what is this thing with these marks on it? Um, And I took it to a a library um, in Sandringham, and the librarian said to me, I don't know what that is, better take it to the museum. Um, And I'd I'd been to the museum before as a kid, but never thought there was anything more to it than just the exhibits. And Mm. um, he explained you could have the fossil identified there. So I remember going in after school one day on the train, um, taking my fossil in my hand and going through those great doors that uh, the museum used to be in russell street and there was these magnificent doors that could you get a blue whale through them as i guess they needed to do on occasion (laughs) Um, and there was guards there in the old days with the peaked hats and things and they called up and i sat on a chair waiting and uh, eventually a man in a white lab coat came down and took me up to the collection it was amazing i went up this stairway that was off uh, you know out of bounds for the public and past an egyptian mummy and past a skeleton of something and remember going into the collection and there was just hundreds and hundreds of cabinets with these drawers. And uh, he opened one of the drawers and pulled out a fossil that matched my one pretty much and said, this is what it is. It's a, a sea urchin fossil, which is X number of years old, 10 million years old. Um, and you could see, see I was interested. So he said, are you interested in dinosaurs? And of course, I was <laughs> really interested. And um, he opened up this other drawer and um, there was this bone about oh, the size of my thumb. And um, he said, this is the Cape Patterson claw. It's the only dinosaur bone ever found in Victoria. And he asked me to put out my hands and he put it in my hands. And it was this, again, this moment of kind Mm. of, my God, I'll never wash my hands again. This is incredible. Um, So I went out um, and just on fire about fossils. And uh, I never found out whether the bloke in the white coat was a the curator or just a cleaner or a janitor for the museum, whoever it was, I didn't meet them again and um, but they changed my life anyway.
0: What do you love most about fossils?
1: Oh it's the opportunity to travel in time and adventure in time. Uh, you know you can, um, that that fossil sea urchin that I found uh, I realised had come from a deposit of fossils that had formed in an ancient Port Phillip Bay that was uh, there 10 million years ago and that bay was such an exciting place. I found out eventually you could find uh, bits of extinct whales and the teeth of gigantic sharks and all sorts of other creatures that swam in that bay. Uh, you could find the mass fossils on the bottom of the existing bay. Mm. So for me, it was, it was a marvelous thing to, to dive under the water, look around on the rocks at the bottom of the bay and find these bits of this ancient bay, which for me, uh, in my imagination, that's sort of where I was with these gigantic penguins and whales and sharks and things, so it was just a, it was a, an escape I suppose. So you go
0: off to university and, and based on everything you've said so far I would have assumed you'd gravitate towards studying fossils, but you didn't. You uh, you, you went to La Trobe University and studied English. Why was that?
1: Well I'd have, <laughs> yes, yeah, a very good question I ask myself sometimes. Um, look it's, it really was due to the fact that I was a very mediocre student at school. Um, I attended a Catholic boys' school uh, on the edge of the bay. Um, it was a very difficult environment for me. It probably suited some kids, but for me, it, it wasn't a great place to be. All boys' environment, quite strict, um, quite religious, uh, and obsessed with sport, none of which was me. you know. <laughs> so, so I didn't do very well. I didn't learn a language. I uh, did miserably at maths. Um, uh, and so there was no options really for me but to go and study um, uh, humanities. So I decided oh, I'll be a school teacher. It's the only thing I knew. So I went um, went to La Trobe, uh, did four years of studying um, English and history, which I, I must say, I look back on now, as a time of wonder. I mean, you think of, you know what I was able to study? It's incredible. I was able to study uh, Chaucer, Old English, Ancient Greek Tragedy, Um, the Portuguese and Spanish colonial histories, um, these wonderful subjects that are just no longer taught. I mean, Mm. where can you go to learn Middle English these days in an Australian university? Um, So that was... I I just loved that as well. So you got
0: the canon, basically. Got the
1: canon, yeah, exactly. But also got a love of reading good literature, which, again, I think is just a a gift. You know, imagine being... in those days... uh, thanks to Gough Whitlam, we were sort of, you know, was free. You could go there and and read good literature for four years, which is what I did. At the end of it, I realised I was not cut out to be a teacher and uh, um, I was volunteering at the museum and um, the curator there said, look, why don't you apply for a, uh, to do a geology degree because uh, the, the, the country is in great need of geologists and you know, they may accept you. So I went to Monash and um, applied and... Lo and behold, was accepted. So I did a master's in geology and then did a PhD in biology and um, so I sort of shifted.
0: And then your work as a as, as a biologist then goes into uh, to tracking first kangaroo species around Australia and, and then mammals in Melanesia, is that right?
1: Well that's right. My my very first job paid job actually was um at the more well open-cut coal mine, believe it or not. Really? Like uh, yeah, so. yeah, where um The the workers there had uncovered what they call a fire pit, which is a big deposit of clay, Mm. which had formed in a hole that had burned into the clay, into the coal, sorry, um, some millions of years ago. And that uh, clay preserved the remains of kangaroos that had fallen into that fire pit. And the mine uh, in their little uh, uh, visitor centre wanted to have a, a little display of these fire pits. So I helped to prepare the skeletons and clean them and um, help put them on display. And those skeletons formed the basis of my master's project as well. Um, so uh, that was interesting. They were incredible skeletons. I mean, there, there was impressions of skin preserved, little joeys preserved in a pouch, stomach contents preserved from two million-year-old kangaroos. It was unbelievable. Anyway. So, um, so I studied paleontology, um, did a PhD at the University of New South Wales, and during that time I realised that the fossils that I was studying in fact, had close relatives still alive in the rainforest of New Guinea. So uh, that was where I needed to go. Um, having made one trip to New Guinea, though, it was a bit like meeting Lawrence Williams in Broome those years earlier. They here were effectively are Australian Aboriginal people. They're all part of the same group, but living traditional lifestyles with their own languages, uh, still uh, living pretty much as they have. for for such a long time. And it was such a a privilege being with those people. Yes, it was difficult and dangerous and whatever else, but it was just an immense privilege looking at the world through the eyes of a culture and people that haven't been part of our trajectory for 60,000 years. It was extraordinary.
0: Did you have that sense sometimes that you you were intruding that you you shouldn't shouldn't be there or did you always feel that there was a sort of an obligation to record the stories of uh, of of these ancient
1: mammals that's a great question um i'll tell you a little story um i think we all f- fool ourselves at times about what we're doing and why we're doing it and um I remember I was working with a man called Lester Seri, who was with the Department of Environment of Papua New Guinea, and he'd come with me. We'd go into a village, and the first question is, why are you here? You know, And we would we had this little patter, and I'd say, look, we're here to record the mammals in your area. We want to learn about the uh, your knowledge of them and what is here, because in the future, um, you know, there may be a development, there may be a mine here or someone may put a road through or something and, and the wildlife could be impacted. So we want a baseline, we want to know what's here. And I remember one old man in a village meeting where we said this, just put up his hand and said, he said in pidgin English, he said, you're not here to that. He said, for that, he said, you're here to put your name up. And of course I took great umbrage at this at the time, but it stuck with me because he was absolutely right. I was there to build my career. And I should have been much more honest with people and said, I'm here to build my career. And then we would have had mm. a, a real partnership, a real basis, because they under, people understand that. So um, it I taught me a big, big lesson. And, you know, uh, as I said, I owe so much to those people. Not yes. just my career, but, a, but something deeper.
0: It was pretty. Uh, it was pretty brave. I mean, uh, I mentioned Indiana Jones before. I mean, you've had uh, you've had arrows pointed at you and uh, in a- in anger in those environments, haven't you?
1: Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess that's part and parcel of being in those environments. And I should just uh, tell you, I worked there for more than twenty years, and twice over that twenty year period, I was in some sort of danger, physical danger from mm. people. Both uh, as a result, not of my doing, but of circumstances around me. So the guy that pointed the arrow at me was out of his mind with anger because his wife, he felt, had slept with another guy and uh, I just happened to be in the way, you know. Um, So, yes, those sort of things happen, um, but they're not my... uh, You know, probably over a 20-year period, Mm. you and I could have been in a close, uh, near car crash or something else. So these things happen.
0: Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, during that period, you uh, discovered a uh, a giant rat, and uh, and then also uh, uh, you were exploring uh, tree kangaroos as as well. What was the what was the defining limits of what you were looking for? Were you looking for for whatever new mammals you could find?
1: Well, initially I was there with a paleontologist's mindset, looking for these species that were present in Australia's past. But I soon realised that you know, even though there'd been a hundred years of biological exploration in New Guinea by the time I got there, um, the, there was much yet to be discovered and what was yet to be discovered was extremely surprising mm. because uh, in the past, what the pattern was this, that people would come from Britain or from the US or even from Australia, go into a village be rather fearful of the local people and just use their own techniques to census and and, uh, conduct their survey. So they would use rat traps or nets or shooting or whatever and they always stayed in the village environs and and didn't go far out. So, you know, the small mammals were quite well known. The small rodents and bats and so forth were, were, were fairly well documented. The things that were undocumented were the large mammals because to go out and find a tree kangaroo in New Guinea... Uh, You need to go with a very, very experienced hunter, and you need to go out into the most remote areas of their territory, which are sometimes dangerous because there's an opposing tribe nearby, and you need to sit there for weeks with that person, um, uh, imbuing yourself in what they're saying, in the environment, until Mm. finally you find evidence of this animal. So in the past, people, I think, were too fearful to do that. You know, even as late as the late 1930s, biological expeditions into New Guinea carried guns and were shooting Indigenous people who opposed them. So it was a very confrontational situation. My situation by the 1980s was different. I was actually able to go in, perhaps I was naive enough not to worry about that, try to find that fellow who was always a loner and a bit of an odd bod who enjoyed being by himself out in the bush <laughs> you know following tree kangaroos and go with a him and be an, then. Yeah, yeah exactly be an apprentice you know to that person yes and they would I, I found they really opened up because they were loners in the village they weren't interested in growing pigs and the, you know the, the kids and the, everything else in the village all too much trouble but they liked being in the bush mm. so um and and they found that i was someone they could talk to and uh Sometimes it was quite strange. You know, people would lead me up into the bush and they'd say, oh, the old fella will be here in a day or two. You just wait, you know. So I'd wait by my campfire. And uh, finally, a day or two later, this old man would turn up, sometimes in the middle of the night. You know, the first thing you'd know was his dogs coming in, you know. And then an hour later, he'd he'd arrive, (laughs) right? And you'd find he speaks no pigeon, no English, only the traditional language, you know. And um, I used to arm myself with a list of names of the animals I was interested in, so I'd ask the locals Mm. about them. So... First thing I'd do is cook some food, or have some food for this fellow, and you know. we'd sit down by the fire and I'd read out the names. And um, it'd be Debol, the tree kangaroo, you know. And all of a sudden, hearing the word, the man would transform himself into a tree kangaroo. Not just the the sounds of the animal, the way it held its body, but the way it moved, the way its eyes looked around, you know. And we'd go through the list, you know the the eagle the harpy eagle mm. the guy had become a harpy eagle you know these people knew everything there was it was like opening an encyclopedia and um, it was I think looking back one of the one of the values of the work I did was I recorded that information before it vanished because now really there are very few people of that that caliber that nature uh, in in the parts of New Guinea I worked
0: it sounds uh, an extraordinary experience not only to be able to have those conversations but to have that time uh, I feel we're sort of we're in such a, structure, a structured environment with so many demands on our time that uh, that that sort of um, the freedom to allow to wait a day and a half I, I can't think of when I've waited a day and a half in Australia for anybody anybody to t- turn up um, but it, it must change you a little um,
1: well I just think about the value of Spending four years in an academic institution having lectures, whereas the, and opposed to the value of having a couple of hours with a master like that, Yes. <laughs> and it's yes. it's worth the wait.
0: Yeah, uh, and in the uh, uh, you of course spent a huge amount of time in the Australian bush as as well. I know in the in the future readers you've talked about the extraordinary efficiency of uh, of the Australia the Australian natural life, uh, given the poor quality of the soils. Indeed. I'm not sure whether it's you or somebody else talks about the fact that Australian plants uh, need to be uh, much more careful about being eaten, and so therefore need to contain many more poisons. So when you walk through the Australian bush with all its wonderful smells, really you're smelling the poisons of plants that are desperate not to be eaten. That's right. Uh, <laughs> is, is that, uh, are, there, are there other observations you have as you walk, walk through, the Austra- through the Australian bush that uh, that might shape listeners' views as to, as to how they engage with it?
1: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, you'd, boy where do you start it I mean for me walking through the Australian bush is a bit like um, someone who is really interested in classical music hearing a great symphony Mm. you know they'll be able to pick out all of the musical notes and instruments and know the history of the piece of music and the conductor and everything else and enjoy it as a whole whereas other people listening to that just hear a bit of sound Mm. you know Mm. so for me I look at each individual tree and think oh that's a member of the Mertasi family and of this genus and its fossil record goes back this far and it's it grows in that shape because um, of, of you know it was eaten by Diprotodons fifty thousand years ago or whatever or it flowers in this way because it's it's it, at this time of year because it's competing for uh, pollinators to be able to pollinate it and and so you have this a, a, a deeper appreciation I think mm. um, I, I I don't mean to say that my knowledge is privilege in that way. It's just the, the, the way my mind has turned, you know.
0: You've just spent an incredible amount of time thinking about the bush.
1: Yes, yeah, um, and I too take great, a very deep satisfaction from being in it at any one moment and realising this is a moment of privilege that you were there.
0: Do you have favourite spots to uh, to go for even day hikes?
1: I Look, I do. Um, I, I must say I, I love the Sydney Sandstone because it is this uh, it's been able to uh, preserve a relic of a much older Australia. And in Australia, that's not much changed. It's such an infertile place, there probably wasn't diprotodons in it. Uh, there were very few megafauna. So when the megafauna went, the sandstone just kind of continued on. Um, and it's those those environments that are less compromised that I think I find more more satisfying.
0: Whereabouts in Sydney? Is it uh, typically around the Hawkesbury or do you think... Oh, look, a any, anywhere
1: there's sandstone, it's the same, because, uh, yeah. you know, you walk around a great block of sandstone, you know, the, the stuff weathers in these blocky shapes. Yes. You can see along the coast with these fissures in it. And, um, uh, you know, you're on the north side of it. You might as well be in North Queensland. There's, you know, kind of a very dry sclerophyll flora with, with a lot of reptiles and things, you know. You go to the east side of it and you've got those very typical, um, you know... Um, Uh, smooth-barked Angophoras and things. Um, The west side, you've got another harsh environment. The south side, you could be in Tasmania. You know, it's this shaded, ferny, amazing place with, you know, waratahs and things. Uh,
0: And uh, fossils are... Quintessentially about the past, climate change is uh, ultimately a challenge about the future. Your transition from one to the other is, is quite a, a marked point in your career. Um, what caused that? I mean, was that the experience of being overseas as the professor of Australian studies at Harvard? Or uh, was, it, was it something else in what you saw that made you make this quite significant shift in your career?
1: I think it... It's a a really great question, one I haven't analysed, perhaps like I should, but I think it was a growing understanding that humans are a very powerful element in the Earth system. And even prehistorically, we were quite powerful. We caused extinctions, we changed ecosystems by uh, the use of fire and so forth. And I think working with Aboriginal people and New Guineans really helped teach me that because you can see the impacts particularly in New Guinea where those societies were substantially intact and still living a hunter gathering life you could you could see the impacts and understand so it wasn't a big leap for me then to say well here we are in this highly industrialized society what sort of impacts are we having you know and clearly they were absolutely substantial and and once i uh, Learned a bit about the atmosphere and the size of the atmosphere, and and the, the you know looking at the killing curve and that ever increasing CO two, and knowing the paleontology of past climate change, it became totally compelling, and I realised that you know I, the way I put it now really is that we humans are the mind over the land, and um, we've been doing this mindlessly, this damage. We now need to assume responsibility and grow up and and um, make sure that. We act in a responsible manner as the mind over the land. Otherwise, uh, you know, our Earth system simply won't tolerate us because we become too expensive.
0: So your career had known. Some controversy beforehand. Uh, certainly, there was there was some uh, generated by uh, your writings about the impact of Indigenous Australians on the land, but but nothing like what happened when you d- dived into the uh, into into the climate wars. Um, how? How did you deal personally with the uh, the sort of the, the level of, of vitriol that began to be directed at you? I guess even beginning with your time in Australia of the Year, but certainly during your time in the Climate Commission and then the Climate Council.
1: Um, look, I it yeah, I think that what what really sustained me through all of that and continues to sustain me is a really deep sense that I've thought through this stuff. I've looked at it from every angle and I'm convinced I'm right. So if I had any doubt about whether I was right or not, I think I would have a very different uh, approach. But I really do think that I'm right, and this is very important for the future of humanity. So happy to have a debate with people. The personal stuff initially um, concerned me, the personal attacks. But then I realized, I thought, well, if they're not attacking my argument, they're attacking me, maybe they haven't got such a strong case. you know. So, so that again was a source of strength for me, and I started to think about it as it's a bit like a game of rugby. You know, I've got possession of the ball, I'm running for the try line, and that they are desperate to stop me. (laughs) I'll do anything to stop me, right? (laughs) So my job is just to keep going. You know, despite the foul tactics, you don't turn around and slug someone who's, you know trying to hold you back you just run for the dry line Mm. so that's what I that's the way I started looking at it and I I became a a, I guess a tougher person um and that's not always a good thing but you sort of have to have that to survive I think Um, but can I just say one other thing that the experience taught me you know as as the climate commissioner my job was to go out and talk to average Australians about this so we held town hall meetings around the country and I would have met 10 to 20,000 Australians sort of face- to- face in audiences, uh, and answered their questions and engaged with them respectfully. And I came away with a very, very deep respect for the common sense of the average person in this country. Um, and that's something, again, it was a bit like meeting these indigenous leaders, these great people, something that changed me forever. And I really do have great faith in people. And their ability to discern what needs to be done and what's right.
0: And one of the things I've ad- admired about uh, how you've spoken about that experience is uh, is when you've told the stories of uh, folks that have surprised you. Can you uh, recount for us the uh, the tale of the Queensland meeting when a man st- stood up with uh, uh,
1: coal coal dust in his uh, in his skin? Well, that was one of the more difficult meetings that um, we held. It was in um, Mackay, I think, in Queensland, and. Um, We had uh, George Christensen in the audience in the front row and about 150 people and um, there was clearly a bit of a hostile vibe in the air. George and his colleagues were just forming a bit of a hostile block at the front. Um, So we we gave our presentation which was about 15 minutes and explained to people this was really their night and please ask anything they want and engage in any any way they want with us. So the first hand to go up in the audience at that point was this big, burly guy. (laughs) He was way over six foot, you know, big bug. You could see the coal dust, as I said, you know, in his skin. And um, he stood up and just said, look, well, thank you for your presentation. Um, I understand now... He said, I used to be a farmer. I understand now that um, my farming business was destroyed by climate change. He said, I've got two children, eight and ten, two daughters, and, um, you know, I had to find work. So he said, I've gone to work in a coal mine.'" And can you tell me, am I doing the right thing? And it was just this incredible moment of, wow, you know, how do we deal with this? And um, of course we all said, look, your first responsibility is to your family. You have to put bread on the table. You have to keep going. But that we as a community need to move forward to create better opportunities and cleaner opportunities that won't compromise your children's future. Um, But it was one of those moments where you just... um, It's, again, life-changing, I think. And, uh, you know, you realise that these people aren't the enemy. We're all in this together. Mm. And that um, given the opportunity to engage and understand and think and debate, we will come up with good solutions to this and many other problems that beset our society. I mean, one of the things I feel so strongly is that the political system treats us like children, you know, to be ruled over and to be, you know, imposed upon. People uh, at elections bring out policies um, which they may or may not stick by but which people have very little influence on when what we need as adults is an opportunity to engage at a deeper level and a more meaningful level. I think that really is the, that's the key thing now, It's my, what I feel so strongly and think we need to foster. There are two preconditions to, to getting that engagement. The first is that you must give away some power to gain authority. So you must empower the people. Right, holding a, a citizen jury as was done in South Australia recently with the nuclear issue and then deciding you don't want to be part of the answer is just corrosive to the thing you know um, you, you so you give away power to gain authority and secondly pay people for their time you as a political representative are paid for your time to represent us so you know if you are Facing an issue where you want some real engagement, you, you need to impanel a jury of people. You know, whatever the whatever you consider the um, a, a good representative cross section of society, it is. Maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's one hundred and fifty people. You know, impanel them, pay them for their time, give them the power to hear from anyone they want on the issue, but set a deadline by which they must make a decision. And I think that way you would get some real. Um, engagement with community and as that becomes embedded in a way of thinking for all of us um, we'd find that we all have the we all we're all in a position where we rule and we are ruled over alternately and we understand and respect the nature of power and the nature of societal decision making.
0: Do you think that has the potential to take some of the scratchiness, the anger, the, the hostility out of politics?
1: Absolutely the reason people are Angry is that they are alienated and they don't believe the system represents them anymore. Um, and it's it's the easiest thing in the world to complain. It's what children do when mum says the light has to go out at night or the TV has to go off, you know. Um, but but you need to empower empower people. And I as my experience is that we as a species, when we work together and we're exposed to each other's scrutiny, are magnificent. We, as individuals who winch and complain in a powerless position, are miserable. <laughs> so we just have to change that dynamic.
0: Yes. Uh, you've got so many dimensions to, uh, to your full and busy life, uh, but, but one of them, I suppose, is is adventure. How do you, how do you build adventure into uh, to, to what must now be uh, a pretty frantic existence?
1: Oh, um... Less frequently I look one, once a year, um, my family and uh, get together usually around my birthday my older kids get together and we go and look at the geology of some area and um, you know, down the Otway coast or whatever and that's wonderful because we tra- mm. time travel together back to the age of dinosaurs or to a time when there was volcanoes erupting on the western plains or whatever it is and we enjoy some good food and some good wine and whatever but that that's uh adventuring for me at the moment. I, I also um, uh, am running two community conservation projects in Melanesia at the moment in the Solomon Islands well not running but facilitating really because the community is running them and they, they've come about really because I've felt ever since I went to New Guinea in the 80s that um, I've owed a debt to those people yes. so I managed to get some funding from a European uh, foundation and um, we are empowering these communities to to set their own rules to set aside areas, um, uh, to, to train a workforce of people who can look after and monitor the biodiversity in those areas, as well as provide some facilities like schools and so forth in these places. So I do get up to New Guinea still with those areas, but it's under a very different power relationship now. I'm no longer the white guy coming in just to do that. I'm visiting the community to, to see them empowered and see them yes. do things. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a great change, really.
0: That must be very, yeah, very rewarding.
1: It really yeah. is. It's fantastic. And to have that, it's much more a feeling of, of equals, whereas before mm. I would just drop in. But that was what it was in the 80s. It was a different world. Right? Mm. Now people have got mobile phones and wherever, it's, it's different. and uh, But it's great having that chance to preserve uh, some biodiversity. And the areas we're working in, in, in uh, Bougainville and the Solomons, really don't have effective uh, national parks or conserved areas. So. We're really trying to build something from the ground up that that hasn't existed before. So I find that immensely satisfying. Now
0: you're a prolific writer. Uh, Do you have particular uh, rules, approaches, styles when you write? Do you do it first thing in the morning? Do you have a word target?
1: No, no, I just, uh, it's interesting actually, writing a big book. I've just completed the draft of a big book, which is an ecological history of Europe. And um, I've been wanting to do that for 15 years, but haven't had a way in. And I finally found the reason for writing the book about three or four years ago. And since then have been doing it. It's in, it's funny the way your mind works because it's, I, I you know, if I've got a spare moment I'll be researching the book um, and somehow in the back of your mind it all the cogs turn and then at some moment, it could be two in the morning, it could be six in the morning, it could be three in the afternoon, something comes out on the computer, you <laughs> know, some paragraphs and <laughs> stuff. So it's as if you've got a little bit of your mind that's always working away on this stuff and, and then it's downloaded uh, whenever you get the chance.
0: Do you find writing easy?
1: Um, it would, Well, put it this way, writing a book is a bit like building a house, right? First of all, you've got to have the concept and the plan and that I find difficult, that the reason for writing a book is slow to come to me sometimes, even though I know generally I want to do it. The kind of, you know, the conceit if you want is not easy to come by. And then you've got to gather all your materials, and that that's okay. Um, the bit I find hardest is the construction, putting up the frame, if you want, um, because that's like just this pounding bit where you've got to get everything structured and organised. and. I've, I do have to do that fairly intensely, so I need a month mm. or six-week period to do that. But then afterwards, the decoration, you know, painting uh, and doing or making every sentence sound great, I love doing that, and that can go on forever, and that's where you've got to on a to be yes. back, and someone says, no, you've done enough. You know, you'll wreck it if you keep painting over this. <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> I've heard you say in the past that uh, you,
0: uh, you came to the realisation that most of the Great thinkers in the world that have existed are now dead, and that the uh, way of uh, engaging with them is through their books. Do you also think of yourself as as engaging in a conversation with those with those people through your own writing?
1: Yes, yes, I do. Um, it's interesting, just that whole idea of of democracy. The thing you know that we were just talking about reading, that rich history of thought about democracy is so mm. fascinating because there is that Platonic view, you know, that we should be run by oligarchs, a group of experts who are the wisest and best of us, mm. who you know, should represent all of us. Um, and that whole history of, of politics, for me, that's, I, I do engage in a debate with, with, with all of that literature in my own mind, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: I think it's Chesterton who says that tradition is the democracy of the dead, and it's how we give votes to our ancestors.
1: Yes. Well, it's so true, isn't it? Tradition in democracy is, and it is so important. I mean that if you break that traditional link with a revolution, um, you you end up throwing out. I think the capacity of us all to work together. And I think that's why incremental change mm. has been so important. As frustrating and painful as it is, it, it seems to be the way we work best as a species. Um, Yeah, so I'm not really a fan of of revolutions as such. I'm not a kind of Marxist in that view. (laughs) Uh, But I do want quick change. I want it to be as quick as it can be.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, there is that tension between the, the Burkean view that... These institutions we have now uh, are the result of the accretion of wisdom of ge- generations but also the notion that sometimes we do need to act speedily on an issue like climate change in order to, uh, to save the planet
1: but they're also not just the accretion of wisdom as Burke would have put it but the accretion of privilege so you know right. you have you know, if, if you look at the trajectory of democracy it's been one of um, uh, a few people sharing. In it, the nobles, you know, mm. and then the franchise widening and widening and widening. Um, until today, we're in a position where we have a democratic system where privilege still holds to power because money is allowed to speak in our system. Um, and the idea of, of, of all of us having an equal valued input is not yet there. But that has to be the next step, doesn't it? That has to be, you know, and how you do that, how mm. you, how you mm. d- divorce money from political power, is the challenge. That this generation faces.
0: Yes, uh, we talked before about parenting and, uh, and and about some of the aspects around adventure. But I'm also curious. You've uh, you've got two children over thirty, but then you've got uh, another t- another child under five. Um, what's it like to become a parent for a second time around, and and what do you do differently this time around as an older dad? Well.
1: <laughs> that's that's I mean that's it's such a great great question. Um, for me, what I've learnt, having done it twice, is that you, it, it, parenting is about self-regulation. You know, kids grow themselves up. Really, they will find what interests them, and you you can help them. You can hold their hand. You can expose them to interesting stimuli, interesting things, uh, you and so forth. But the one thing you you need to give them is that. Oh, it's sort of, I can only call it unconditional love. You know, if you give them the security that comes with unconditional love, um, they will grow themselves. Now, they probably will do things you won't like. Well, they certainly will do things you won't like, you know. <laughs> Especially when they get to be about 15, I remember very well. <laughs> um, and, you know, self-management's important. I remember my son for a while, you know, he went through a period where he just grunted. You know, was speaking was gone. And it was literally the physicality of old bull, young bull, you know shoulder me out of the way as he, you know, the testosterone surge hit. And I thought, I could say something, I could be really rude, I could you know put him back in his place, or I could go down to the bottle shop, buy the best bottle of wine they have on the shelf, take it home, drink it and say, well, Sonny, this is out of your inheritance. <laughs> and that's what I did. <laughs> that was my, so it's much easier the second time around, the, the self-control bit of it. Um, um, but really, just it's, it, it, that self-control is mixed with a wonder of, seeing this, the unfolding of this person Mm. and and realising just get out of the way, let it happen.
0: Uh, I imagine you would be a little more gentle, a little less worried perhaps the second second time around, knowing that you'd raised Two, two, two children successfully into adulthood and that uh, probably probably things were, uh, were going to go all right the third time round as well.
1: Well, exactly. All of that anxiety about what should I do? Am I doing it right? Mm. I don't have that much anymore because I I, I realise it's actually they're doing it for themselves. I'm there to create that bigger picture, yes. just the, the security and so forth, but they do it themselves and all the little stuff. It's all just a phase. It doesn't matter. You just let that go. You know, just <laughs> Um, so finally, Tim,
0: let me close on a couple of uh, standard questions uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
1: Um, be a bit more serious in terms of learning about girls, listening to what they're like and what they want <laughs> I think would be good going to an all boys school what else can I say? I mean you know kind of you know you're totally thrown in the deep end
0: um, Yes, which presumably is not a challenge that uh, youngsters face so much in a, in a world of ubiquitous internet, right? Well, exactly, um, and they
1: would know me. You know, I would think it's a, it's a changed world. But for me, it was a, it was something... I, w- I really wish I'd had a wise uncle who would have taken me aside and said, now, Tim, here's, here's what you should do. <laughs> here's what it's all about.
0: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
1: Well, I, I was deeply religious till about the age of 14, and I've given that up um was there a think.
0: single moment uh, uh
1: yes there was yeah it was it was i was at school I, I read the gospels and realized that you know that this couldn't possibly be true <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that you know the, well there was a whole lot of things in, involved in that yeah. but there was a period where i just thought no catholicism but such. your
0: your reverse epiphany came came at catholic school that's right yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah
1: um what else do i believe that i that i don't believe that i used to um i think i i used to believe that australia was a a better more gentle place than it actually has become i think uh when i look at the sort of the, the torn fabric of our society particularly as it's you know we're nearly at australia day now tomorrow is australia day and um you look at the way that this day, that should be a celebration of us as companions, you know, companions of this order of Australia that we are in a way, all of us are, um, has been torn by people with particular views of of history, um, trying to be heard. Maybe Australia Day can't ever be that again. But you hope that there is there is something which can bring us all together, and and. Um, display some generosity, some forgiveness, uh, a determination to do better for all of us over the next year. Um, I, I, I guess I, I thought that was part of what would naturally happen. It, it, it's not and uh, it, it's something I dearly love to change. <laughs> and you feel that more strongly than you did
0: Eleven years ago, when you were being announced as the Australian of the year
1: certainly, yeah, I think um, yeah, I think back then I had a, a more optimistic view than I have now. I think Australia's got a, a lot of growing up to do, and um, I don't mean that disrespectfully, I just think that that we we are yet to realize that we're all in this together.
0: When are you most happy
1: um Well, through my life I've had varying, I guess, degrees and moments of happiness. One can be ecstatic, one can be content. Um, I'm ecstatic when I discover something new. Um, I'm content uh, when I'm contemplating Australian nature, something wonderful about Australian nature, or being with my family. Um, But I I don't know. I don't know whether either of those states actually is the the way we should really be. (laughs) I think probably a bit of discontent is good for us. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway,
0: I've, I think you've said before that uh, your decision to engage in the climate debate didn't make you happier, but was still a worthwhile decision.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It didn't make me happier, but it, it taught me a lot, and I'm glad I did it. Mm. Um, um, I think really, I, I'm. I'm I I am an idealist, you know. In some ways, I can, uh, and perhaps human nature doesn't always conform to the ideal. But I'd love to be part of creating a solution that allows us to at least step a little bit closer.
0: (laughs) What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
1: It's definitely uh, for me. It is the looking after myself physically. Um, I've gone through periods where I haven't done that, and um, I realise my mind doesn't. Uh, work as well, and I'm not as happy. So, remaining physically fit is really important to me. Uh, what do you
0: do? Swim? Or I, I,
1: I do weights at the gym. So that's a. I just find that's the thing I'm good at, and I play a bit of squash. I cannot imagine you as a gym rat.
0: That is the the most surprising thing you've say, said to me this in, this entire interview. I assumed it had to be something in the outdoors.
1: No, no, it's it's the intensity of of just lifting that iron yes. is yes. is very good for me somehow mentally and physically. So. that's what I do. Whereas I can walk. I mean, I love doing Mm. bushwalking and I use my fitness when we go out with the kids and we're climbing cliffs or we're, you know, looking into a boulder to find out what's in it. You know, of course I use it, but to maintain it, I have to do that weekly. And I am, I live here in the city of Melbourne, so there there are not as many options.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And mentally, do you find uh, you need to to stay off social media or do you have kind of ways of, of managing... That, that, that kind of input into your life? Which, yeah, it's a great platform for ideas, but it's also potentially a source of stress.
1: I, 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 I don't use social media um, very much. And I find that um, the unconsidered throwaway mark that is remark that is so easy to make over social media is really about giving vent to the worst of us. Um, considered decisions you, you you just look at the way people interact face to face in indigenous communities where you will know that you n- will know that person for a lifetime and and their parents knew each other and and their children will know each other. The consequences of being an asshole if you want are so <laughs> profound that people simply never are right it 's all about valuing other people and you might think differently you might obviously we all do but We we have to maintain that civility. So I think social media is, is for me, not not where I want to be with that. In a meeting with people, discussing things, yes, that's where we need to be. Because we we monitor each other. We create that civility. It's very hard to be an absolute prick (laughs) when you're in a room (laughs) where you have the common scrutiny of people around you. Sorry to be using language. It's not appropriate, probably, but it's true.
0: Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures
1: oh probably too many to to list here
0: <laughs> we, we've got time uh, go, let's, start, let's start let's start running through them
1: oh my goodness what we might well i don't know how guilty they are i love classical music i love baroque i love geordie saval i love the the uh, recital center here in melbourne um uh what else do i enjoy Probably eat too much meat. I do enjoy cooking roasts and things like that. That's probably a guilty pleasure. Um, uh, I enjoy traveling by car, even though it's a hybrid. I know it's burning fossil fuels but it's, you know but uh, getting out to the bush with the vehicle is a is a guilty pleasure. Um, what else? Um, apart from a nap in the middle of the day occasionally. <laughs> Increasingly.
0: Naps are wonderful. Other friend. ones
1: I'll leave, I'll leave, uh, I'll turn the light from, put, <laughs> draw the veil of modesty <laughs> over them. So. That...
0: Well, finally Tim, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
1: Uh, um, well, there, there have been so many I think that have pushed me in the same direction, but um, meeting Aboriginal people and seeing the way they view the world and each other has been hugely influential. Um, but even more so in New Guinea, in that village situation, where you see um, what we can be if we if we're respectful of each other, are hugely influential on me. And again, being climate commissioner, and you know, not just having to sit in an office and answer emails or whatever, but engaging with people, that has been hugely influential. Um, I think without those experiences, I would have really lost faith or been at risk of losing faith in what we are potentially capable of as a species. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, those things that are important.
0: Tim Flannery, thank you for sharing your thoughts on who you are and what we can be on The Good Life podcast today.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Andrew.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.